questions yet? No, sir. Okay. So she doesn't know what I'm going to ask her. Annette, when did you first come up to this mountaintop to live? Um, let me think. I believe it was somewhere in 99, I would think. Okay, around 1999. 90, somewhere around there. I can't remember. When did you start attending this or 96, church? 96, somewhere. I don't know. Uh, when did I start attending this church? Uh, 2000, maybe two years ago, I would say. A year, two years ago, I would think. Very good. How many sermons have you given so far? up here at the pulpit. Uh, none. This will be my first one. All right. This is her first time. So keep her in your prayers as we listen to how the Holy Spirit has worked with Annette in her life. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Dan. That was sweet. And thank you, Melissa and Jonathan for that song, that was lovely. Um, to begin, let's bow our heads and let's ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today in your house of worship. We ask you to be with us and we ask you to open our ears, open our hearts, and open our minds to hear your word. And we ask you to be with me instead of me, uh, instead of me speaking, we ask you that you give me the words to say and help us all to leave this place with a new heart, a new understanding of you. And we ask all these things in your precious name, amen. Okay, first of all, um, I would like to give a little background of my parents and um, this is all coming to me from memory. I didn't write anything down, so this is all coming from memory and of course from the Holy Spirit that he's gonna guide me through it. So first of all, my mom was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and she came from missionary, uh, missionary family. So she was born and raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, she had a, a 15 sisters, and uh, I don't I know she had one half brother, and I don't know how many brothers were in her family, but I know it was one half brother. Um, she went to uh, different colleges, and she became, she wanted to study, so she became a nurse. As um, she, she started out as a nurse's aide, then from there she worked her way up to an LVN, so she worked as and then uh, somewhere along the way, she met my dad, and my dad came from El Paso, Texas. And um, my, 
my dad went on to the war, and he went. He fought in World War II, and I believe he went into World War One. Um, and then uh, my mom, she she had a kind of a rough childhood because she was adopted out of all my aunts and all her um, sisters. I believe there was one or two of them that were adopted and my mom was one of them that was ended up being adopted. And she had a rough childhood. So um, she was all the time hit, which I found out later to, to us, to me, it wasn't hit, it was beaten. She was all the time tied up underneath the table and she was always yelled at and stuff like that. So it was, it was a really sad situation. And later on, my mom and my dad, they got married and fortunately, as they had, um, they had kids. They had uh, four of them, or three of them, biological. And then one of them was adopted, which I'll get to, we'll, we'll get to that one. We'll get to the adoption later. So now, um, now we will get into um, the life story, my life story. That's what I decided to base my sermon on, which is my life story, my testimony. Um, I was born on March 15th, and I was born in LA, Los Angeles uh, Medical Center. I weighed six pounds, three ounces, and I was uh, 16 inches long. I was a child of three as well. I need my glasses on. Excuse me, sorry. Um, as well as I have, um, I was the oldest girl and I have two older brothers and a younger sister. I lived in Los Angeles the majority of my life. I started preschool when I was three. Um, I went to uh, preschool until I was four and then kindergarten, I graduated from kindergarten. I attended for elementary school, I attended uh, Bellflower Elementary. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Um, I went to uh, Adventist school all my life until sixth grade. And in sixth grade, I went to, in sixth grade, I went to uh, public school. And I was kind of intimidated to go to a public school because it was a whole new environment. I didn't know what it would be like, you know, because going to Adventist school, it was, it was totally different. The environment and everything, it was different. Um, so I remember Every, as a child, I remember every Saturday afternoon, we would never be home. We would always go out visiting. We would go to the beach. We would go, we were just very active. Every Saturday and Sunday, we would go on picnics. Um, it was just, it was just fun being, you know, a little kid. This was when I was about six, five, six. It was, it was, it was just a fun time. It was just great. 
Then as I got older, anywhere between, we'll say seven and eight years old, um, we were going driving to um, Ontario. It was an Adventist school in Ontario because we would never, we would never stay in one place in one house. We would always be moving around a lot and stuff like that. So we were just all the time just constantly just moving from one house to the next. So when I was around seven or eight years old, um, my dad would always drive us to school because mom would be uh, working as a nurse. As a, she got the shift uh, 7 to 11. So she would leave at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, and she would work at White Memorial Medical Center, which I still believe that that hospital still exists up to this day. Um, so she would leave early, and she would go on to work, so my dad would take us to school. And I remember this. Um, my dad would dri was driving all three of us to school, my older brother in the front, my, bro my other brother and I, we were in the back seat um, of a blue, it was a dark blue Maverick. I don't know, remember, I don't recall the year. But it was a dark blue Maverick, and we were going over the railroad tracks. And at that, at that time, the seatbelt law was not enforced. I don't know why, but it was not enforced. And all of a sudden, um, there was a other car, and he passed the stop sign, and he hit on my dad's side. And um, my brother, my other brother, he, the car rolled several times, rolled, and then my older brother, he hit his head on the windshield. My dad went from the driver's side, he went clear to the back of the car, and then my other brother, he blacked out, he didn't know what happened. And then we tumbled a couple times, and then me, the only thing, nothing, I mean, this was just by the grace of God that nothing happened to me, but when the tumbling stopped, I was, the car landed on, on the side, on, you know, on two wheels up, and, um, the car caught on fire. There was just a little flame, and the car caught on a. And, and so, nothing happened to me, and I don't know why, but nothing happened to me. So, I was the first one to open the door because the car landed that way. So, I was the first one to open the door, and I saw a firefighter standing there, and he asked questions, and I said I was going to jump out because I saw the flames. So, and he said, no, you're going to sit tight. And I just looked at him kind of funny, like, wait a minute, the car's on fire. So I said, okay. So he helped me out. I explained to them what happened. And they had to, to get my dad out. They, had, he, they asked me who was in the car, so I'm giving them all the information. And it took a while to get my dad out. They had to actually cut the back door. Very, they had to cut the back door to get my dad out. And I can't even remember how they got my other brother out. And then my older brother, they bandaged him up because he had blood right here on his forehead because of the cut. And so they rushed us to the hospital. Then we had to call mom to let her know what happened. She was all shooken up. So um, long story short, that was just, you know, the hospital told us that that was just all a miracle by the grace of God that we came out alive. 
Um, my dad was badly hurt in that one because he had a whiplash. He hurt his back. And so it was just a miracle that we came out alive. And I know God protected us. I didn't know at the time, but I know God protected us in, in that um, car accident. Um, of course, we were, you know, we were scared. Any, I mean, we were, I was, you know, we were young. So anytime we would go in the car, we would, we would be, I mean, we would just cringe every time we got in the car because we would get, we were scared. So we survived. We got over it. God helped us to get over it. So we, we survived that one. Then as time went on, we got older, and I mean, we weren't perfect kids. I mean, even so, we would try so hard to be perfect, but we all know we weren't perfect. So my mom, she, every time we would do something wrong, she would, she would spank us, and it wasn't very pretty the way she would spank us. I mean, she would hit us with basically anything she had in her hand. She would hit us with fly swatter. She would hit us with the belt. She would hit us with flip-flops. I mean, there were times with flip-flops, there were times that she would wet it with water, and she would spank us with that, and that would stink. I mean, that seriously stings. So... Um, according to her, that was her form of discipline. But it was, I mean, it was, it was just hard being a kid. And according to her, we deserved that. Now, we all know nowadays, we all know that that's considered as child abuse nowadays. We know that. But... What can we do? We couldn't do anything. We would just stand there and take the pain. At the age of nine, um, I started uh, smoking. And I started drinking very little. Not heavily, but I started drinking very little. Um, at this point, we had moved. Like I said, we had moved a lot. So at this point, we had moved to Chino. And my mom, she had... Uh, this is where she developed heart problems. She had um, what you call uh, CHF, which is congested heart failure. So she, had, um, she was going in and out of the hospital with heart attacks and mini, uh, mini strokes here and there. And the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. So every time she would go to the hospital, she would they would run tests and whatnot until finally they decided to do what you call an angiogram, which, um, which checks the whole heart and finds out what's wrong, if there's any blockage or anything like that, which finally they found out that there was a blockage in her arteries. And they talked about during, doing a open-heart surgery, but they couldn't do it because they, it might have... There was complications in doing that because along the way she developed uh, diabetes and, or she already had the diabetes, so 
it could interfere with that, so there was just too many complications of doing the open heart surgery. So they prolonged the open heart surgery, so she was going in and out of the hospital periodically, and that was just, it was, it was just nerve-wracking to see her in the hospital, but at the same time, it was kind of a relief for me when she would go in the hospital because then I wouldn't get spanked or anything like that. So, I mean, it's kind of sad to say, but it was, it was just true. So then, um, something happened in, in that house in Chino that uh, there, there, in, in, the in, that, in that house, there was four houses. We were living in the front, and in the back house, there was a neighbor, and I found out that she had a baby. And I was, I was, I was nine years old, so I didn't know any better. I mean, I was just curious. So we, I made friends with the, with the neighbor, and I went over there to the neighbor's house because I wanted to play with the baby. And I asked, the, I asked um, after, this was after my mom's fifth heart attack, by the way. And I asked um, the neighbor if I can just have the baby for one night, just to see how the baby would feel for one night. And she agreed, she said yes. So I went, I brought the baby home and I talked to my mom about it and she said, well, you know, okay, just for one night, okay. So then that's when I, I mean, it was, it was fun. You know, I played with the baby and of course, you know, the, uh, she was only a month old and the baby's name was Karina. And that's when one night became two weeks. And we were like, okay, this is kind of odd. So I went to the, my mom said, well, don't you think you should take, you know, the baby back? And of course, you know, I was heartbroken because I wanted, you know, I was having fun with this baby. So she said, so my mom said, well, you need to take the baby back. So I said, okay. So I took her back home and I told the mother, you know, I handed her with, you know, the baby back to her arms. And I told her uh, the mother's name was Irma. And I said, well, you know, I go, here, Irma, here's your baby. And she said, well, what's wrong? You know, is the baby bothering you? And I said, no, not at all. And so she says, um, I said, well, it's your baby. And she just, I mean, I kid you not, but she handed me the baby back in my arms like she was like a baby alive. And I was going, okay. So I ran back to my house, to, to my house, and I told my mom what, you know, what Irma had said. I said, Mom, she just gave me the baby. And she's looking at me like, what? And, you know, mind you, my mom just came out of the hospital from her fifth heart attack. And so we both run down to the house again, and she says, well, is this true? Do, you know, and she says, yes. And I said, well, so at, at that point, she... At, at that point, we um, got the letters and, and everything, and we got the adoption papers going, and we had, you know, my mom and dad went to court and stuff like that, and up to that point, up to that day, we adopted Emma, or we actually changed her name 
we kept Karina, but we put, the family decided to put Emma. So we put Emma Karina and then our last name, Gonzalez. And then now that, you know, she's married now with three kids and now her last name is Michelle. So that is how we adopted Emma. That's how she became part of us. We, we told her the truth, or actually I told her the truth because I was basically taking care of her every night when she would wake up. I learned how to change her pampers. I had to do the bottles. And I was only a nine-year-old kid. And I took that responsibility to do that. And as a nine-year-old kid, that's a big responsibility, but I strongly believe again that God gave me that strength and to do that. And I mean, we would all the time play together. We would all the time do everything together. Um, so at that point from Chino, we moved to Riverside. Now, by this time, I was already 12. So at this point, we moved into Riverside. And I would take Emma to the park. And at that's when, at the age of 12, that's when um, we lived in the corner house. And I mean, Emma was like, at this point, Emma was around, I would say, two. So we would just, I would just take her to the park and we would walk to the park together. And we would just have fun. And that's when I went, that's when at the age of 12, um, at the park, there was um, a neighbor across the street. And then that's when I met my friend Mary, which most of you guys now, most of you guys already met her. That's when I met Mary, and it was just, I mean, she, she liked Emma, Emma liked her, so we were just kind of, we became talking, and then I found out, you know, she was, we just became friends. And we've been friends ever since. I mean, she's moved to different parts of the world, and we've lost contact. But somehow or another, God made it a purpose, or God didn't want me to lose her as a friend. So we've always kept contact with each other. It didn't matter how far away she was. We always kept contact, and we still keep contact now. So, I mean, I... Th I I'm really thankful that to God that, you know, I have a friend like her because she's been a she's been a real blessing in my life. And we would always hang out together every I mean, all the time. So that's where, you know, um It, it, I, I don't know how I, I don't know what else to say about that, but she's been an inspiration in my life. So at twelve, um, we would just Emma and I we would just hang out together. We would play kickball. I mean, you name it. I was uh, she was she, Emma became my best buddy, and I became Emma's best buddy as well. So. The abuse never stopped with my mom. It just progressed even more and more. As we got older, it progressed more. Now, in my teen years, 
My teen years, I rebelled at the age of uh, 13. That's when I started rebelling. And I was, I was involved in Pathfinders. I have to say I was involved in Pathfinders. Um, but the rebellious never stopped. It just kept on progressing more and more. The hitting never stopped. It just progressed more. I remember my mom would just um, get so upset that she would throw, basically she would throw anything that she had in her hand, she would throw it. She would throw cups. She would throw glass. I mean, there was a couple times where she even got upset and she threw me with, she would throw knives at us. Well, not at my brothers because my brothers were gone. So she would throw knives at me and I would have to dodge them underneath the table so she wouldn't cut me or anything. And I just couldn't wait until the day that either I started driving or I would be 18 so I can get out of the house. So then she couldn't throw anything to any of us because we would be already gone. Both of my brothers were gone out of the house already. Um, so, then that's when, um, in my teen years, she, I don't know, my mom, I guess, she got into her depression, or she suffered through depression, I don't know, for whatever reason. And she decided to try and commit suicide for whatever reason, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, I know for a fact that she would blame us for that because we were disobedient, we were this and we were that. So we would get blamed for that. And so she decided to take an overdose because she had all these, she would take all these medications for her heart, for, she would take insulin. Um, so the, the, the weird thing is that I, I find it weird would be she would take medication, she, would take an, she took an overdose, but she didn't take the overdose on none of her heart medicine. So I'm, I'm guessing that she didn't really want to die because if she did, she would take overdose on the right medication for her to die, which would be her heart medications. And she, she didn't do that. She took an overdose on her sleeping pills. So I'm thinking that, in my mind, she didn't want to die. I'm thinking that, and I found this, I mean, I didn't discover this until I got older, until when I was like 15 or 16. And I'm thinking that she wanted, she did this to get some kind of attention. So, uh, I, I, I mean, like I said, I didn't find this out until, I didn't figure this out until when I got older. And so, then that's when she went through therapy. So I, I'm thinking, okay, this is great. She's, got, she's getting help. So I'm thinking, okay, this is good. And then somehow she was doing, but she got better. And then somehow she reverted again. She decided to go ahead and do it again. So I'm like, well, okay. So, but this time they didn't send her home. They put her in Loma Linda in the mental hospital now. So I'm thinking, well, okay. This is kind of, I mean, it, it's kind of sad to say, but I'm thinking, okay, now she's getting help. The abuse now stopped. 
And so she was in there for, for a year. She tried to escape from there, which is not good. So she tried to escape. And so finally she came out. And that's when you know we were like, OK, maybe this will stop. But then somewhere along the way, it didn't stop. So she went ahead and she abused Emma. Now, she abused Emma to the point to where Emma got taken away, and she got put in a foster home for, I believe it was for six months, I believe. And when I came home from school, and I found out Emma was gone. And I was upset. So when I found out, the, I just left the house and I ran to my best friend. By this time, Mary and I were best friends. So I ran straight to Mary's house. And I told her what was, what was going on. She calmed, I mean, she calmed me down. And half of the time, I would be at Mary's house. By this point, I would be at Mary's house. I would do homework together, help her, you know. That was like my little escape goat was going to Mary's house. Um, so then finally, we got Emma back. After six months, we got Emma back. My mom needed to go to counseling now because that was the only way they would release Emma to us if she had to go through parenting counseling, she had to go through all of that. So finally, I was, finally I turned around to the point to where I was able to drive. So that was, uh, I got my permit. So I was like, okay, yes, I got my permit. So dad would take me out driving. That was my, totally, that was my escape goat. So I would make any excuse just to go to the store, just to leave the house, um, just to go driving. Um, so, then it, so then that's when, finally, um, I was able to get my license. And I bought a car with my income tax money. I bought a car. It was. Um, Let's see, it was a 1975 Mercury Comet. So once I got my license, I was never home. I was like, I'm, I'm done. I was never home. And of course, that made my mom upset because now I was never home. So it was great. It was good for me. I was, I was, I was excited. It was great for me because I was never home. So she was upset. And finally, I turned 18 which was, okay, now I'm an adult. I'm legal, I'm an adult. I had wheels, I had my car. So I left the house when I was 18. I got my first babysitting job. I would come home on the weekends only to go to church. And I was like, okay, now I'm more independent. She didn't like that idea, but I had a, by this time, I had a mind of my own. And so that was, you know, that was that. And then at 18, this was, I gotta back up for a minute. Before I turned 18, or before I got my babysitting job, I started using drugs. And um, 
But I would, I, I never, at that moment, I never left the church. I would still, I would still go to church, which was not kind of wise, but I, I still would go to church. Um, I didn't leave the church until in my 30s, in my, I can't remember, early 30s, late 30s, whatever. But that's when I left the church, and it was because I had pastor issues. And then it wasn't until later on when I came back up here um, that I found out it wasn't the pastor who had the issues. It was kind of a misunderstanding that were the issues. So, but I, you know, it was, it was just God who was just kind of working all the time in my life. And I never, I, I can't say that I, I kind of did lose sight of God, but for some odd reason, during the, the, that time of the 30s, I was, I knew I had to go back to church, but I didn't, I, w- I was kind of scared to go back to church because I was gone for a long time, and I was just like, well, what are people going to think, and, you know, what are people going to say, and, you know, I always had that in my conscience, And it wasn't until I moved back up here, because I had left the mountain for 10 years, and then 10 years later, I, for some odd reason, God just said I had to come back up here. So 10 years later, I moved back up here. And then I found this little church right here, and I said, no, I have to go to church. I have to come to church. So I was living around the corner right where Hilda lives, and I said, no, I'm going to come to church. So I came here. And then that's when I met Mary Angelie here. And I was like, okay. And then ever since then, that's when I came to this church right here. And then I was like, hey, this is great. Then Mary Angelie invited me to come to Bible studies and, you know, and, and stuff like that. And then I got into the end times. And she was... Um, she was uh, doing the seminars with the end times and all this, and I was like, oh, okay. So I got into prophecy, and I was like, oh, okay. And then it, it just opened, I mean, it, God just opened my eyes, and, and I was like, okay, I need to be here. And ever since then, I came, I started coming here, and then I met, you know, I met everybody, and I'm going, hey, God just put me here, and I've been coming ever since. And then I got, you know, I met Dan, and and I, you know, just things just started falling into place. And I was like, okay, I need to come, I I need to continue coming, and I I came here. And that song that um, Melissa sang, that, that, that just meant a, a lot to me when I first heard it, because I heard it on, on the TV. Um, and I was like, you know, that song just, it, it meant a lot, because you go through life, you go through different roads. And it was just, just one thing that you have to remember is 
God will always help you find your way back. And I strongly believe that, you know, I was struggling through life and he helped me find a road for me to go on. And I strongly believe that if any of you, in, in conclusion, if any of you are going through roads, through tough roads, God will always find a way for you to, he'll find a path for, for each and every one of you to go through. Now, I mean, that, that, you know, that's all I can, I mean, that's my conclusion, that he will always find a way for you to go through. Now, um, I, I remember a Psalms that my mom, she would always tell us, that if we're afraid to always remember Psalms 91. And I remember a poem that she used to, that she, she always liked. And by the way, both of my parents are gone. I mean, they, they passed away in, in the year 2005, which was, you know, which was tough, but they, uh, mom died in um, December 23rd of 2005, and my dad died May, I forgot what date it was, but I know he died, he, he died in May something of 2005. And my dad died of um, his uh, lungs collapse, and my mom, they just put it as natural causes. I mean, she had all kinds of she had all kinds of issues that were wrong, diabetes, heart problems, cataract, I mean, you name it. And then eventually, later on, she, years went by and she did go through the open heart surgery. But I remember she always liked the poem of The Footprints. And when I read it, it, it became very dear to me. And in closing, I would like to read it if I may. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking alone, I mean, along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life for each, for each, each scene, each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest time of his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you, see, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk, in, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the most troublous times in my life, there, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why I needed you. I don't understand when I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord repro replied, my precious, precious child, I love you and I, and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, 
When you see only one set of, of footprints, it, is, it was then that I carried you. And I know this was one of my mom's favorite poems also because she had, she had this somewhere written um, somewhere along the house. And, you know, I never understood it. But then as I got older and I kept on reading it through and I was like, you know, that is so true. Now, um, I've asked Melissa and Jonathan again to sing one more, one more song that um, became very dear to me also. And it's, um, the name of it is, It's My Desire. So at this time, um, they're gonna sing. They're gonna sing for me. It's my desire. <laughs> 